Welcome to the MT, or Multiple Theory, podcast, where we hold conversations with thinkers and practitioners from many different fields and backgrounds in the hopes of finding a way together through dialogue. My name is James Yuan. I'm the Vice President of the University of Toronto's Jungian Association, formerly the Jungian Society. On this episode, I'm joined by Anderson Todd, and we'll hear about his perspective on the integration of Jungian and cognitive scientific thought on topics like dreams, meaning, and the pursuit of wisdom. So I have this rather um, formidable task of introducing you and all your titles. So I know you as, uh, well, now professor at the University of Toronto, so in cognitive science and in the Jungian courses. You're also assistant director of the Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Lab and registered psychotherapist doing private consultations. You act professionally as a game master for tabletop gaming and an enrichment educator. Mm -hmm. um, have I missed anything important? Um, I think I'm also a licensed reverend in the state of California, but that doesn't come up that much. Really? Only California? Only California. That's interesting. We'll have to come back to that. All right. So I'm happy to get you at uh, this particular time of year and unfortunate to drag you out of vacation mode, but so we are. Um, just since we're starting to open up now and we're sort of starting to ever so slightly see the light at the end of the tunnel of a year and a half of very unusual isolation and pressure. Mm -hmm. um, so mental health and overcoming that sense of meaninglessness have been very active topics in the, I guess, in the collective consciousness, even more than they have been in the growing trend. And so you as an instructor, a therapist and a researcher, you're quite embedded in this aspect from pretty much all sides. So. Um, very much how, so. how has the year been for you in terms of all those things? Um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of the gen general social stress with students and clients and just people that I know, obviously it's been, um, you know, a very, very taxing year and a half for everybody. Um, and so, you know, my professional roles do involve obviously processing um a lot of that material and sort of helping people while they're processing it. Uh, for me personally, um, you know, it's been obviously odd uh, since, you know, your routines get uh, quite disrupted and so on. But um, uh, in general, in some ways, it wasn't all that different. I mean, I was seeing clients, but online and I was teaching classes, but online and I was, um, you know, socializing, but online. The main difference is that, uh, I don't have to walk to an office anymore. I just have to walk through my kitchen. So I'm sort of looking forward to reversing that uh, and actually being able to go outside into the community. But yeah, it's obviously, it's been a taxing year um, for, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I have even personally, I've noticed that, you know, some, some of us whose jobs and overall hobbies have more or less, are more or less suited to this sort of indoors living have actually, it's been an odd time, but not necessarily as destructive as it has been for others. Like, you know, for me, for example, like I've just managed to retreat into a shell of books <laughs> and mm -hmm. dive into that sort of exploration for a year. But um, even recently I've noticed lots of people sort of becoming more interested in this sort of stuff. But specifically today, we're going to talk about um, Jung, seeing as we are contributing to this Jungian podcast. So how has, do you think uh, your Jungian thought, how has your Jungian thought figured into this whole process of working with clients and students and everything. Do you think it's an essential framework you work by, something that generates a lot of meaning by itself or just something you draw theoretical frameworks from? Um, 
you know, I have a I have a long background in using um, Jungian thinking as a as, as a framework to structure my own thinking and my own work. Um, I mean, definitely that stuff is sort of uh, in dialogue with the other streams for me. So, you know, I, um, in general, I try to sort of hold my metaphysics quite lightly. Uh, and so anytime I'm thinking about, you know, uh, an explanation for something, whether it's sort of a, um, a phenomenon or you're looking at sort of a, uh, an experience, right? something that somebody is reporting phenomenologically and is kind of unusual. I'm typically rolling that through a bunch of explanations. Uh, so, you know, I'll sort of take it through um, a more naturalistic explanation and then gradually move into things that are more abstract or archetypal. Um, and so all of that stuff tends to be in dialogue um, with each other. Um, I not infrequently use the sort of framework as Jung himself constructed it, but usually with fairly significant caveats. I mean, like, you know, like, like any thinker, my position is, you know, about 50% of his theory is probably wrong, uh, since about 50% of every theory uh, at any given time is wrong. Um, and a lot of the time I would tend to divide that. I think about it in terms of um, the sort of language of training versus language of explanation. So Jung's attention to the phenomenology of certain kinds of experiences is very good. Um, but I think, you know, there are definitely some, some holes in that theory, both in terms of sort of its explanatory power, but also in terms of how well that stuff uh, lands or fits with people who are thinking about it in, in modern terms. So yeah, lot, lots of caveats, but I think it does come up pretty frequently and it is an accessible framework for a lot of people once they get over the, uh, you know, the sort of initial esoteric aspects of it. Yeah, I definitely feel like a lot of people, myself included in the early stages, get really hung up on um, sort of a lot of the mechanistic implausibility that sort of goes into Jung. Um, you know, one of the first documents I read uh, in the original written by Jung, or at least in the translation, um, is his synchronicity and a causal connecting principle. And you know, mm -hmm. sort, of, it's sort of the interest of that um, phenomenological thing that he's captured and is, seems to be something significant uh foiled against his astrological experience which strikes me as very like methodological yeah so there's always this sort of tension going on um, even though you can sense that there's something going on in there yeah the synchronicity i mean that was um not not where i came in at young but it's certainly something i've um spent sort of lots of time thinking about over the years and it's something i'm playing with theoretically kind of on and, on and off much of the time. Um, either, you know, asking myself a question, it's like, well, okay, are a causing a causal connecting principles, is that a sort of a reasonable standpoint to take as an explanatory frame, framework? Um, I'm inclined much of the time to think that it is. On its face, there's nothing I can see that's intrinsically wrong with that idea. Um, you know, I gave a talk a number of years ago where um, I was in the, the weird and unenviable position of attempting to defend dualism, um, basically because they were doing a, a debate style set of sort of talks and then, and then debates, uh, and they just needed somebody to take up the position and nobody else would take it. And, you know, the, you know, the main point that I made then was, look, the, the main issue people level against dualism off the bat typically is this causal interaction problem. Right, that if you have two completely different things, you can't have causal interactions between them. Right, they're different substances, uh, etc. But we have it now well established that causal interactions are not the only game in town. 
right? A causality is a very established part of physics. And I'm always hesitant to play the game that some people want to, that's like, look, quantum mechanics is hard to explain and so is whatever else. And so therefore we can explain it with quantum mechanics. I don't wanna make that move. But as soon as you've established that some kind of principle is in operation in any case whatsoever, then it's on the table. And so if an a-causal principle is on the table in quantum physics, and indeed it is, right? Um, the work of Alain Aspect and right, Bell inequality and a lot of the quantum experiments that have been sort of verified since the 90s, these things are, are pretty much baked into our most successful physical theory. And if you can have an a-causal principle there, I don't see any reason why an a-causal principle is sort of off the table in other domains. Um, you know, at the same time, then you very rapidly go down the yellow brick road towards, you know, uh, extreme weirdness if you start letting that in the door. So yeah, sometimes I'm toying with that stuff and just thinking like, okay, a synchronicity is, you know, a sort of a meaningful coincidence. So is there a sort of psychological principle that we can posit where people experience more meaningful coincidences and that is a signpost for some other kind of, um, you know, transformation? You know, is it a, a, a state of neurological readiness generates more meaning? So like I said, I hold my metaphysics lightly and I kind of slide this stuff around, but um, definitely that's one of those aspects of Jung that people uh, hit, hitch up on, right? Either they go for it um, and they love it, or they hit that and they're like too weird for me. And there's a lot of breakpoints like that in Young. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to hit a place reading through the stuff where they're like, okay, that's too much. UFOs, I'm out. Um, although I like that UFO article. <laughs> yeah. Um, definitely going down the rabbit hole and sort of picking a stopping place seems to be a, a common, at least common part of my experience. Um, I've I've heard it said, um, I believe by our mutual friend Jun Sung that um, that Jung is sort of could have been best approached as like a magus or a mage, but um, in the way that's been placed as a as a scientist, um, there's sort of that tendency for people to go down the rabbit hole and mm. uh, maybe get themselves stuck without without the basic magical practice that he likes to um, focus on in his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jungian techniques, when you look at them closely, and imaginal techniques bear, um, you know, a pretty clear resemblance to, um, you know, magical technique. Uh, there's a lot uh, to, that's sort of shared between them, both procedurally and in terms of, you know, their assumptions about things. Um, Jung himself was pretty guarded about the idea of being thought of as, you know, uh, an, an occult figure. Um, but obviously, he's very interested uh, in that material. So, and of course, there are accusations that he, in fact, was intended to be an occult figure and intended to be primarily a spiritual figure. And then, in fact, you know, uh, uh, it's it's a it's a cult in principle. Uh, I would tend to disagree. I think he does have serious ambitions, both philosophically and scientifically. And there's some of his work that really clearly takes a strong experimental footing, but. Um, where people get hitched up is if, if you're trying to categorize this stuff, what exactly you're supposed to think of it as, right? So to think of it as psychology um, really steps sideways from what most people are now thinking of when they think of psychology. But if you consider psychology as a kind of 
whole life discipline, right? Like a totalizing system and way of thinking, which is to say what we would typically think of as a philosophy. Um, then it all falls into place pretty quickly. And it's emphasis on certain kinds of sort of um, inner events that are not necessarily merely subjective events, clearly, um, you know, d does lend it a similarity to, to um, magical practice, but it's obviously intended to be sort of therapeutic, primarily therapeutic, right? It's a way of, of improving your life and improving your mental health. And so, yeah, it's, it's an on duck. It's hard to, it's hard to fit it in easily. Uh, I like Jung the Magus. That's a funny idea. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. I mean, Jung out of, out of almost all the historical figures I know has been is sort of like remarkably polysemous in people's thoughts and sort of he takes on sort of a different shape for everybody that has has read him or is familiar with him. Um, I still think it's really interesting that you have managed to been teaching a course about this at, at this, you know, high end university, I haven't heard of any or well, many others that don't sort of dedicate a whole program to union analysis that just teach a course on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm lucky in some respects that I have the opportunity to do that at U of T. Um, and I mean, some of that is due to the uh, uh, sort of uh, great generosity of the Woodmans, uh, Marion and Ross Woodman, uh, who bequeathed the university a quite substantial endowment to further sort of Jungian studies and so on and so forth. But yeah, um, in fact, when I was sort of very first looking around and trying to find programs, I mean, there's, the, there's I think, a graduate program at Pacifica and a few smatterings of things here and there. And of course, our analyst training programs, but there isn't a whole lot um, at the, the sort of undergraduate level uh, in terms of getting your, um, your feet wet with this stuff. I mean, you can do it in a, you know, um, psychology of religion course, but you might do a class on it. And it turns up on a few of the other courses that I teach in the Buddhist psychology and mental health program. Um, but otherwise it's, it's hard. And some of this I think is that Jung has had a sort of persona non grata status in the academy for a long time. Um, I've spoken with a lot of people. Um, so for instance, I know a quite, um, a quite prominent psychedelic researcher who uh, when and he, he and I were speaking after a talk that he gave, and I sort of said to him, it's like, you know, it's interesting, a lot of what you're describing is, sounds quite archetypal. And, uh, and he said, yeah, well, uh, that's because I am quite archetypal, right? I, I'm in fact a big fan of Jung, but you can't, you can't bring this up. And he got cautioned, as many people do, like, don't touch this. It will, if you get yourself entangled together with Jung, it will mess up your credibility and stuff. I'm deeply opposed to that idea and have been for a long time. Um, so in fact, like psychedelic research, I think it's one of these fields that does deserve more serious attention. Um, but by the same token, um, bringing that attention does mean bringing it into dialogue and into scrutiny and into critique. Uh, and that's something that the Orthodox Union community has often been less than receptive to. They have felt, I think, a bit embattled. And so there has developed something of a gap between, um, you know, the analyst community in some ways and the broader academic community. Uh, and so, yeah, I think sort of opening that dialogue up, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Jung's ideas getting more attention uh, and hopefully indeed getting some, some credit. Uh, he was very astute in a lot of ways. Um, so, 
But um, yeah, uh, there isn't a whole lot of undergraduate focus on it, which I think is unfortunate. It seems that there's a, a really strong interest in that. Yeah, I've also seen in, um, in my recent, I've been reading Northrop Fry recently and sort of, you know, if you look at the like literary, crit uh, literary criticism and anthropology and all these streams, they're sort of rife with these ideas of, of mm -hmm. archetype, although in slightly different sense, but um, yeah. Yeah, when I read Anatomy of Criticism the first time, I'm flipping through it and I'm like, for sure, for sure he's reading Jung, for sure he is. Like, I understand that the archetype as a concept doesn't quite originate with Jung either, but some of the comparisons are pretty striking. Um, uh, and yet uh, Northrop Fry is one of a number of scholars who sort of denied any connection uh, to Jungian works, but did own his books, as it turned out. Uh, so there are a bunch of people who, who I think maybe were reading this stuff on the sly and at the time were likewise advised uh, probably like don't go don't go near it this guy is radioactive I think that's unfortunate and I would like to see I would like to see that change I think that there have been some I think that there have been some significant advances in the last let's call it 30 years uh, in a number of sciences that are pointing in a direction that Jung offers some tantalizing material on and again you know I don't think it's sort of the final answer I don't even think science has a final answer, um, but uh, uh, but it would be nice to see sort of a more credible examination. Uh, and it, yeah, it does seem like there is even a sort of um, broadening of the mainstream. The publication of the Red Book, especially, seems to have piqued a great deal of interest in Jung in a way that moved him outside of the more um, yeah, sort of fringy channels that he was in and uh, yeah, I think to some extent you're seeing that get reflected into the into the academy too, but time will tell. So we're we're seeing some baby steps into the ivory tower, perhaps. Mm. Um, I think uh, the work in cognitive science at U of T is quite, from what I can tell in my one year of experience, quite uh, tied in at least. That may be your influence with uh, with Jung's ideas. Yeah, I mean, I've pushed that line pretty hard at U of T and pretty hard with. Um, you know, in CogSci, you know, there are a few things that I've had long-term fascination with, and they include psychedelic research, and they include Jungian thinking, and they include sort of um, magic and ritual. And those are all things that I've pushed on pretty hard in my time at the university, mostly just with an eye to, um, can we talk about this, you know, without treating it like a joke? Like, is there something worth looking at here? Uh, and I think that there is. Um, it seems that there is, in fact, a receptivity there in all of those directions. Uh, I mean, obviously, right, the psychedelic renaissance, you know, took off and is now um, becoming, effectively speaking, almost mainstream. Um, you know, so, but that happened, you know, sort of within the time that I've been interested in, in things. It was sort of a non-subject even 10 years ago. Um, Jung, I think, especially with cognitive science, um, has a lot of potential for a few reasons. Um, as a psychodynamic model, Jung is um, extremely dynamical. His system is a lot less sort of static and hydraulic in many ways than lots of the other psychodynamic theories tend to be. And that sort of dynamical, um, organic, the, the idea that the mind is a living thing with living parts uh, plays very well uh, with more current cognitive science. But in general, I mean, 
I sort of look back to even the 1970s when they did early split brain experiments. And as soon as we gave up the idea of a kind of unitive presence within the brain, right, that we, we could look at the surface of the brain as being like a map of Europe and we could locate consciousness in there by, you know, locating the Wicken or the Wittgenstein, the Lichtenstein. Uh, I think that's a Freudian slip. Uh, the Lichtenstein that, you know, consciousness would be in, and we just haven't found that. Um, what we've instead found is that it's a system that um, simultaneously is sort of a system of parts, but that the parts aren't discrete and they seem to have their own consciousnesses if you separate them out, right? So if you sever somebody's, uh, the, the band of tissue connecting their hemispheres to corpus callosum, we've known since the seventies that you get sort of two sub personalities. And if you carry that idea to its extreme, um, accepting the idea that, you know, you're not, as I often say, a singular unitive being but rather that you are a collection of, of agents. Um, from there, getting to the idea of uh, the complex and the archetype is a very short set of steps. You know, you knock that together with a, a bit of sort of uh, evolutionary background. Uh, you combine it together with sort of core roles that you see cross-culturally, right? In, in sort of universally in human societies, universal human emotions. And very rapidly, uh, what you find is a, a kind of you know, neuro pantheon. Uh, and I think that's going to square off very well with Jung, um, although I suspect it won't end up being sort of the Jung that we're familiar with in some ways. It'll be informative, but, uh, you know, far from final. Yeah, and it's, that's, that's one of the more, well, one of the many interesting things that I um, took when I was in your course uh, with the sort of support that we draw from neuroscience and cognitive science and computer science, psychology, all these cognitive scientific areas um, towards, or that might at least suggest these psychodynamic models, because, you know, certainly in the um, public eye, you know, in the textbooks, at least that we read, it's sort of like Jung gets a footnote mm -hmm. as a, as a historical artifact of some, you know, Freud's associate Jung who, who had similar ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, he's usually written off pretty quickly. Um, and occasionally you get credit where credit is due with things like um, introversion and extroversion, uh, which are, of course, Jungian concepts that are now in what we consider to be the best validated personality model uh, out there, the big five. Uh, but you don't typically get, you know, he made quite a few contributions uh, to the field, you know, complexes as a general concept. Um, this is something that people use in casual conversation all the time, uh, never mind, you know, sort of psych psychological description. Uh, and yet I think very few people recognize sort of where that comes from. Um, and a lot of it has to do, frankly, with sort of the general inaccessibility of Jung's work. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not a super straightforward read past a certain point. You can do a kind of primer version of it by reading, you know, man and his symbols or something or uh, the undiscovered self. But past that, when you start digging in, I mean, it's it's heavy going. Uh, and I get people reaching out quite often now online, uh, asking me about some set of passages in the collected works. Um, and then, you know, it's like I'm pulling that down and cracking it up and being like, okay, well, try to think about it like, like this. So <laughs> I try to do a fair bit of that sort of educational outreach. And I have to admit that, you know, I've been reading this stuff for 30 years now. Uh, and as with most of the really profound work that I've read in the course of my life, um, I gain both depth and aspects of understanding 
pretty much every time I read it. So I basically take it as a given that there are aspects of Jung that I do not, in fact, understand fully. Um, because, you know, every time I do a pass through that work, uh, there's inevitably some some shading or some depth or something that I can connect through to um, either my clinical experience or my personal experience that takes on an entirely new uh, dimension. Um, and I mean, that's one of the joys of, of reading that stuff. The, the old is new again, every time you kind of go through, uh, there's a lot to pull out, but uh, it is deep uh, and quite rich and a bit impenetrable by times, yeah. What do you take on the, um... So these, these sort of, um, we, we see quite a bit now of this sort of neuroscientific and all this evidence for sort of that basic psychodynamic hypothesis from mm. which we can take more steps. Um, I think the, the particular element of psychoanalysis as a whole that I've seen most people in the public I get hung up on is dreams. Mm. And uh, I guess Freudian and Jungian treatment of dreams pretty much equally uh, in that respect. Although Freud's name still has perhaps a bit more of a stigma attached to it in uh, mm -hmm. public consciousness. What do you take on, uh, what's your theory on that? So my, my main theory, so sort of my cognitive science take uh, on it is, okay, well, let, let me say first that I, I consider dreams to be exceptionally important. Um, so I am firmly opposed to the sort of school of thought that says that dreams are nothing but random noise. Um, of course, there are some philosophical theories that claim that dreams are not in fact experiences at all, uh, that they are just neural firing that somehow magically uh, set like jello into experiences when you wake. I don't buy that. I don't think the research supports it. Um, but, the, you know, there's a pretty strong sort of activation hypothesis uh, through Hobson school leftover that says that dreams are just, you know, random firings in the brainstem and then the narrativizing part of the brain jumps and it goes, oh, I, I can do something with this. I can turn this into something. I don't think that that's true um, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, we have obviously quite firm evidence now that both REM uh, dreaming and NREM dreaming uh, play a role in memory consolidation. So that speaks to a structure. So if you spend all day playing tennis, the likelihood that you're going to have tennis dreams is quite high, right? Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing, obviously. And with NREM, now that we've established that there is, in fact, NREM dreaming. So I don't know if you've ever had a dream of this kind. Uh, and NREM, so a REM dream is more like a standard dream, sort of uh, vivid scenery and a, sort of a narrative plot line. An NREM dream doesn't um, feel like that. You do get NREM dreams described, not obviously with that term, uh, but in sort of dream yoga texts, like the dream yogas of Naropa and some of the Vajrayana schools. But they are a kind of like dream as thought. So often, you know, sort of a line of thought, almost like a, almost like hearing a voice in a very dark cavernous space. That is often how it seems to me experientially or periodically hearing more than one voice as though you're sort of picking up multiple lines of, of like processing. And that's consistent in a lot of ways with what we know from the science, where if you disrupt NREM dreaming, you disrupt, um, propositional memory. If you disrupt REM dreaming, normal dreaming, you disrupt procedural memory. So people's ability to sort of pick up skills. So all of that tells me that, you know, this is having a, a quite important, you know, function in the neurological sense. Um, for the, the other argument that I often kind of bring up when people bring up the random activation hypotheses is, um, of course, the fact of repeated dreams, which are quite common. 
And, you know, if something is random, we're basically claiming it's noise. I mean, that's the idea, right? And the distinction between signal and noise typically is some kind of structured repetition. If you get structured repetition, you're dealing with signals. So consider, you know, when we turn radio telescopes into the sky and try to find aliens, we're looking for structured repetition of some kind. Um, and the more complex the structure uh, and the more frequent the repetition, the more likely we are to be dealing with signal and not noise. Repeated dreams are sort of a key version of, of that kind of thing. It's structured repetition. And so by definition, that would make it signal, not noise. And I think it's a mistake to sort of treat it as a bunch of random junk, as most people do. Um, the trick, of course, comes about when you're sort of dealing with the concept of the interpretation of dreams, which is how you should be taking uh, what's going on in a dream. Uh, and that's obviously much trickier. I think it's likewise, um, you know, you can go out anywhere and find a big book of like, here is what it means when you see a sparrow in your dream. Here is what it means when you see a hot dog in your dream, right? You can always find these sort of collections in every culture of specific interpretations by dream. Those are interesting. I think they're an interesting reference point uh, sometimes to try to dig around into a cultural association with a particular symbol. But, um, you know, in the sort of Jungian mold, dream interpretation tends to be too some extent universalized, but to a great extent individualized. So, you know, you don't interpret a dream in isolation. Um, you always attempt to do it within a sequence of dreams. And um, when you start doing that work, I've done quite a bit of it with clients, what comes out of it is often remarkable and hard to, um, hard to discount. If it's just random, it shows an enormous amount of consistency, both in its sort of symbolism and its structure. And once you sort of cotton on to that um, sort of individual dialect of a person's unconscious, um, very often it becomes the case that dreams are this running night by night, or if you're doing, you know, standard therapeutic work, I guess, week by week, uh, you know, log of what's going on with somebody. Um, it has really fallen out of fashion. So I think that I, I told you the story about the robot fish, right? I don't recall. Maybe not. <laughs> Sorry. That's a that's a funny lean in. Um, when I was in when I was in training uh, as a as a clinician, I you know we did uh, case conference presentations. So the idea is you know you're seeing a client and you are sort of presenting to the other training clinicians and the other. Uh, like um, supervisors and such, you're presenting a, a case history and sort of what you're doing therapeutically, right? That's part of the training process. So I had a case presentation coming up and the night before I had it, I had this dream in which I had visited one of the previous instructors within the Jungian program at U of T, Prof, Prof Ann, um, who was sort of one of the, she was like the founding instructor of the program. I was lucky enough to take a course with her a number of years ago. And so I was visiting her at this sort of stone barn house that she lived in, in England. And uh, she had this enormous oversized book in the dream. And she was like, this book is the secret of dreams. And I was like, oh, perfect. Like, finally, I've been looking for this, you know? So I open it up and it's got a kind of almost a, like a pop-up book or a cutaway book quality. And when I open it up, it just opens up to this enormous uh, and incredibly detailed cutaway image of a robotic fish. Um, and I'm looking at this thing. And so I ask her like, can I take this with me? And she's like, no, no, you can't take it with you. And so I'm looking at this thing and I'm trying to figure out in the dream, like, can I, you know, use a piece of Thing paper? Uh, can I trace it? I, it didn't occur to me to take a photo. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about this. And then I woke up. 
And as is very often the case with my own dreams, when they're laying it on that thick, I woke up laughing. And so I went into my, um, uh, my case presentation, my case conceptualization presentation, uh, and I was kind of laughing and I was like, you know, look, I'll, I'll get to the actual meat of this in a second, but first I need to tell you guys about this robot fish dream I had. And then I need to ask like, okay, so how often are you considering dreams in your own psychotherapeutic work? And so we went around the table and it was like, never, never, never comes up. Don't think about it. Um, you know, no, no, never consider it. Haven't given it right until we got around to one of the supervisors who was a sort of an older psychodynamically trained guy. And he was like, well, yeah, of course it comes up. Right. Like it's, it's a, it's a different stream of information, but of course it came up. And he, and he gave sort of a little bit of a crash course um, for, for everybody at the table on how you sort of engage this kind of material. But I was quite surprised, I had to say, like I knew that doing dream work was very much a minority position these days, but I was really shocked at how, how thoroughly I think the field has thrown the baby out with the bathwater, um, that it's really not part of a, of a standard repertoire anymore. And if you, of course, train as a Jungian analyst, that's a different story, right? You're of course going to do work in that area. And same if you, you know, you train as a Freudian psychoanalyst, you're going to be doing dream work, but sort of conventional psychotherapeutic training doesn't, um, you know, look at that stuff. And indeed, you know, at, at U of T, for instance, the, uh, the OISE psychotherapy program, last I checked, doesn't even offer a course. Like there's nothing you can do there uh, to sort of even pick up the rudiments of that stuff. That seems to me to be a mistake. Um, there's a reason why this sort of royal road to the unconscious um, aspects played such a pivotal role in early psychotherapeutic thinking. And uh, certainly I find it extremely useful in my work. Not, not every client is interested in it and that's fine. Some people have superior dream recall or they're just more interested, but for the clients that are doing that stuff, it's a whole channel of information that is just indispensable. Um, and doing transformative work in and around that area, I think often kicks things into um, a, a kind of a higher gear, or maybe it kicks it into deeper, deeper areas of processing that are much harder to get at when you're just sort of skating around on the surface with, um, with sort of more modern technique. So, sorry, you, you asked me at the time and I built you a watch, but the, the short answer is, I think dreams are exceptionally important. Um, Although, yeah, I have, again, some caveats about how to think about those and what exactly, you know, we're, we're doing when we're doing that work. Yeah, I can definitely attest in my own, um, I guess, almost a year now of analysis. Uh, it's been, and I, I have been actively trying to participate in dream analysis. I was skeptical at first, but it's been quite interesting, <laughs> at least. Um, you do get those repetitions of sort of, if not symbols, then structures sort of mimicking each other over time. And it's like, it's like a good poem going through a yeah. good poem. I have some suspicion that there's um, significant individual differences in this respect. So, you know, obviously there's large individual differences in sort of dream recall. Um, although typically you can improve that relatively easily if you put some effort into it. Uh, but, you know, you'll always get people who claim that they don't dream. Um, which probably isn't true. Uh, the evidence seems to show that if that were the, the case, that they would be suffering very serious problems, but the dream recall um, is almost completely sort of erased. Um, 
you know, so people have various sort of levels of dream recall, um, but also people seem to differ pretty widely in terms of um, what their dream content is specifically reflecting at them. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons that I'm interested in this is that my own dreams tend to be quite, um, you know, elaborate uh, and not particularly on the face of them concerned with the events of my day-to-day -day life. Uh, they tend to be pretty over the top and extremely narrative and so on and so forth, but that isn't the case for everybody. Lots of people are, are not necessarily dreaming in that way. And some of it, certainly in my work with clients, I think that pretty obviously there is a kind of dialogue that emerges with the unconscious. So it's like you pay attention to the dream and you start doing or attempting to do interpretive work. The dream responds, I think, by shaping its content in a way to try to sort of um, match the kind of work that you're doing, right? So, you know, as you establish a sort of uh, conscious, unconscious, you know, uh, patois, between you in terms of symbols, it's not just that you're gaining an ability to interpret, it's also that the, the symbolism and stuff of the dreams begins to shape itself more specifically to the framework that you, uh, that you develop. And so again, this is not everybody's cup of tea, but for the people that, um, that get really deep into it, I mean, yeah, I have a client that I see now and I told them a few months ago, I was like, look, you have to know at some point I'm anonymizing your dreams into a book. The, the sequence of this client's dreams is remarkable and we deal with them, at, you know, without fail every time I, every time I see this client, we're doing dream work, often quite lengthy, you know, a, a couple of hours spent sort of unpacking one dream. Um, it's intensely satisfying and it often speaks to whole aspects of things that I don't know that we would even necessarily be getting to in this way. Uh, were we just doing sort of, you know, whatever, more conventional uh, technique work or maybe not, not more conventional, more current, more modern, more contemporary since it's definitely conventional, but yeah. Yeah, it is definitely um, fascinating to get a well, a practitioner's perspective on this, since you, you you necessarily have so much more material than you know an individual that most people are just analyzing our own dreams, or if we're lucky and have the resources, seeing an analyst and maybe discussing it uh, with one other knowledgeable person. But um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, I guess, a lot of interest in it, but then mm -hmm. equally as many probably well-meaning cautions against uh, you know going it alone. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is the sort of thing that um, at least certainly in the initial stages, I would generally recommend somebody does with an analyst. Um, there are certain kinds of natural blind spots that we all have. So, you know, uh, I myself, you know, was in analysis for years. Um, and, you know, it, when I first entered analysis, it was just basically because I was like, I needed to rack up hours, right, which were required before I could submit an application to train as an analyst. And my view on it was, you know, well, we're not going to do anything that I couldn't do by myself. Uh, it'll just be nice to talk to somebody that has the same framework and da da da. Until uh, I happened to live, luckily, about 12 minutes on foot from my analyst. Uh, at the time. And so I could basically literally roll out of bed first thing in the morning, you know, pull on a pair of jeans and trudge down there with cobwebs on my face and no coffee. Uh, and I sort of went in one morning about, you know, two or three months in, maybe three months in, uh, and had this dream that was just opaque to me. 
Um, it, you know, it was extremely complicated. It was obviously highly loaded, um, but I couldn't make, you know, anything of it. I sort of came in and was like, what, what do you make of this, you know, and spat it out and watched my analyst uh, brilliantly, brilliantly sort of pull it into its moving parts very rapidly and had the experience that many people have when they're in therapy, which is, my God, why didn't I see that, right? Like once the connections began to be sort of sketched out, it, you know, it had a, a very obvious sort of reference point. But the thing with unconscious material in general is that uh, it sort of intentionally maneuvers itself into our interpretive blind spots, I think. And so things that should be obvious or should stand out to us don't, and doing it in concert with somebody else can make up for that. I think that once you're into it for long enough, you know, obviously your ability to do frontline interpretation on your own stuff improves. So a lot of the time I find myself doing sort of preliminary analysis on my own dreams when I'm still in that like drifting hypnagogic state between being fully asleep and being actually awake. And I'll sort of move through and play with the symbols in a way that I actually find much harder to do when I'm awake. But even still, uh, it's just invaluable talking to somebody else who's got, you know, some specific training in this area. Yeah, super interesting. Um, so we've well covered this topic of dreams. I wanted to pull back just a little bit to, um, well, switching from your therapist position to one of your other positions. I wanted to hear about uh, the research that you do at the Consciousness and uh, what's it called? Wisdom Studies Lab at right. U So the Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Lab was something that I started with John Verveke now eight years ago. Um, and uh, the original impetus for the lab actually was uh, a, a, a study that I had in mind on trying to um, artificially induce lucid dreaming. So I had a, a design for an experiment uh, using um, non-invasive brain stimulation technology, specifically using um, transcranial direct current stimulation, uh, which has gotten a lot of attention in the last bunch of years. Uh, I've been interested in it for, for quite a long time. So this is a it's a technology, people often compare it to um, transcranial magnetic stimulation in which you're passing, you know, you, there's sort of a magnetic wand that you're using to do deep stimulation in the brain area. Um, transcranial direct current stimulation, effectively speaking, is a nine volt battery, a current regulator, and a couple of sponges. And depending on where these wet sponges are placed on your skull, you are directing a pattern of upregulation and downregulation in a couple of different brain areas. This has been shown to have all kinds of sort of interesting effects depending on what the placement uh, is. And so I had in mind a design at the time to test a specific um, setup, what they call a montage of this technology to see if I could induce uh, lucid dreaming. So, uh, and at the time I was doing a lot of work around lucid dreaming and the cognitive science of lucid dreaming. So it, it there you go, that's the segue from the dream section. But uh, we, we widened out since then. So we've done work um, sort of in a bunch of cognitive science areas. And I would say that a big part of the mandate there is that, you know, there's a really strong interest in both cognitive mechanisms relative to some of these higher cognitive processes. So when we say consciousness and wisdom, we're picking those things out um, specifically because, I mean, not because, but those are two things that are often considered a bit woo-woo. 
right? Consciousness, it's like, well, what can we really say about that? Well, the answer actually is more, more than people might think. You know, we don't have a theory. It's, it's a huge problem, remaining problem in science, but there is a lot of really good work being done on what the processes involved are. And, uh, and then of course, wisdom. Uh, and I remember telling somebody that I did work in a lab that worked on wisdom like five years ago, and they laughed and they said, how do you do science on wisdom? And of course I'm in this stuff all the time. So it doesn't occur to me that people have that reaction that that seems like a paradox to people. But likewise, there's been really great work in the last 20 years uh, around trying to model wisdom and conceptualize wisdom and um, you know, come up with a, a sense of what the various cognitive mechanisms and processes might be that constitute what we would call wisdom. Uh, and I would say that a big part um, of our research in the lab is focused, I would say, at both understanding these processes, but also in many cases, uh, trying to see how we can effectively augment them. Uh, that's certainly a strong interest of mine. So like with the lucid dreaming experiment, I, I am sort of perennially interested in ways to, um, you know, to sort of uh, facilitate uh, higher cognitive processes, you know, uh, wisdom, rationality, uh, to some extent, like intelligence, um, you know, ways that we can amplify those things. Uh, and so, you know, there's a bit of a back and forth at the lab in terms of, you know, examining these processes, but usually with an eye to swords towards some kind of intervention, uh, and very often with an eye towards a kind of model of intentional self-transformation. Uh, and that puts us in a in a somewhat unusual um, position lab-wise. We've also done a bunch of work around mystical experiences. That's a, that's a, a sort of a classic uh, for us and looking at the relationship between mystical experiences and other kinds of um, conceptualized uh, higher cognitive processes like meaning in life. Uh, that was something that we looked at and uh, coherence. Um, yeah, so quite a bit of work coming out of that. A lot of that stuff is since the pandemic, mm, fairly backburnered um, and we've been sort of shifting our model. So it just wasn't really feasible for us to do um, like a, a standard in-house lab model over the duration. We have a pretty strong preference for meeting in person when it comes to sort of doing intellectual work. Um, and so we're, we've gradually been shifting in the direction of a sort of a partnership model where if people are interested in doing stuff uh, and it seems like it fits within our wheelhouse, then we're doing you know, a certain amount of partnership. Um, and a lot of that is also associated with the, um, uh, the not-for-profit uh, that I'm running, which is the, the Verveke Foundation. Uh, and for any of your listeners that are familiar with John Verveke or his awakening from the meaning crisis, the foundation is a not-for-profit that we set up basically to sort of further you know, this kind of research for the most part, and to further these ideas about how we go about addressing the, you know, the modern malaise and meaning crisis in general. And, you know, in relation to that general modern malaise, the meaning crisis, as John Rubeke calls it, there's certainly that, um, I guess, that desire for like a unified a way to, to see wisdom, to know wisdom in a, you know, just like we can know things about physics and other mm -hmm. things about psychology. Uh, well, as much as we like to think we know about psychology. Um, although it also sort of rubs against the grain of like um, the more, I guess, the more postmodern conception that there is no <laughs> isolable one wisdom. 
or one truth at least depending on what you call wisdom yeah i mean i think you know when you look cross-culturally there are some differences michelle ferrari has done a bunch of quite good work uh, in this area looking at sort of cross-cultural conceptions of wisdom but um, and, and it's clear also that if you look historically, the notion of wisdom has changed considerably over time in, in human history, broadly speaking, right? There was a time when um, wisdom meant something closer to, I don't know, a kind of technical cunning, um, right? If you look at early texts and, you know, the conceptions of this stuff shift around. I think that, you know, Postmodernism has a good point to make in that sometimes we're attempting to essentialize something that I suspect is not going to boil down to a single completely fixed set of things. I just don't think it's that kind of thing. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it, it seems sort of fairly straightforward on the face of it that there are people who are um, sort of possessed of a superior degree of um, you know, insight, uh, decision-making, self-control, like the things that make for a good life in many ways. Uh, and, you know, much of human history, um, you know, certainly the recorded history, I guess, uh, you know, people have spent a lot of time and effort and clever thinking in religious systems and philosophical systems trying to settle on what exactly, you know, goes into this. Why that wouldn't be a subject for scientific study, I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't, right? It's like, okay, well, it's like we have some suggestions, let's test these things. Uh, and, you know, the fact that there's sort of a thousand roads up the mountain, as I often say it, that's fine. But it's also clear that there are, you know, some forms of behavior and some skills and things uh, that simply perform better. You know, th there is such a thing as skill. And I think that there can be such a thing as a sort of, you know, general moral skill and a general like, you know, life skill. Um, and to, to whatever extent that constitutes wisdom, as I suspect it does, it doesn't seem strange to me at all that we would study that or that that, that would to some extent be a human universal, to some extent, mo modulated and modified, obviously, by cultural material, right, as this stuff almost always is. This concludes part one of our conversation with Anderson Todd. To hear the rest of the conversation, which includes themes such as Jung and the Meaning Crisis, Rationality, and the Origins of New Age Thought, please join us for our next episode. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day.